Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I'm Andrew Parks, the Assistant Director of Lectures and Seminars. Uh, thank you for joining us today in the Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. I just want to take this opportunity to remind everyone in person uh, to please silence your cell phones and encourage anyone who's watching online to submit questions by emailing speaker at heritage.org. Uh, additionally, today's program is being broadcast and recorded. Uh, for your future reference, it will be available on the Heritage website for 24 hours. Uh, now it's my pleasure to introduce the moderator of today's program, Darren Bax. He is the Senior Research Fellow in Agricultural Policy in the Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies here at the Heritage Foundation. Darren. Thank you, Andrew. Um, I want to thank all of you for coming today and everybody who's watching online or going to watch online eventually. I want to thank the Pacific Legal Foundation for co-hosting today's event and making it possible. Right now, there's probably no bigger Clean Water Act issue than defining the term navigable waters. And that makes sense since the definition clarifies what waters can be regulated under the Clean Water Act. And for, dec and for decades, the EPA and the Corps had taken a very overbroad interpretation of what waters can be regulated. And currently, there's a proposed rule, it's very timely, this whole issue, that the, the Trump administration has proposed that would define what navigable waters means. And for those interested, comments are due April 15th of this year. But today, we're not going to focus on the proposed rule or how navigable waters should be defined. Instead, we're going to discuss the real impact that EPA and core overreach has on property owners. Too often, those who bear the brunt of the Clean Water Act, that enforcement and the full force of the, of the federal government, their stories don't get told. These stories aren't really about mega businesses um, dumping toxic waste into pristine lakes. The stories are really about farmers wanting to farm their land, but federal government intervention makes it impossible or difficult. It's about ordinary Americans who want to build a home only to find out that their American dream has become a pipe dream. These are just some of the typical examples. Today's panel will tell us some real-life stories, the stories that policymakers shouldn't forget. So here's the logistics of today's event. I'll introduce each presenter, and then they'll make their initial remarks. Then the three of us will have a discussion, and then we'll have a Q&A. Our first speaker can provide a firsthand account of the overreach, and I and Heritage sincerely appreciate him coming to D.C. to tell his story. Kevin Pierce is from North Dakota. He's vice president of Hawks Company, a North Dakota and Minnesota business that has provided landscaping products made from peat soil for golf courses, athletic fields, and other applications since the early 1980s. Hawks Company fought a lengthy and ultimately successful legal battle with the Army Corps of Engineers, including a win at the U.S. Supreme Court over whether some of their peat mining property in Minnesota is federally protected navigable waters under the Clean Water Act. He's also challenging the validity of regulations the EPA adopted in 2015 that broadly defined navigable waters under the same act. Kevin. I want to start out by thanking you all to, for being here today and inviting me over to tell this story because I've been sitting on it for 11 years. So 
I'll let you know how it goes here. So, um, <clears throat> I'll give you a little background quick on it. Is that we were doing an expansion to a 200-acre peat mining site back in 2006. We started applying for this project. Uh, we went to the. We had three projects that I'm going to talk about, but number one one is the Mercel site, and so we started with the core in 2006 and seven. They wanted us to go get alternatives for this site that showed that they wouldn't work or whatever. They said, go get a couple. We brought them back 15, and they said, well, that was only in a 75-mile circle that we requested first. Now kick it out to 150 miles. So you can see if you can find some more when indeed all we needed was a couple when they first told us about it. Then we went to... Uh, we had some local meetings in Bemidji, Minnesota. That's where that was at. The next meeting we had was in Minneapolis, and which was very unusual for the Corps to have meetings right at the office in St. Paul. But for four and a half hours, all they did is try to convince us to pack our bags and go away because they were talking how we weren't going to get a permit it was going to be very long and very expensive to get. We could have a two to ten percent or ten times the amount of land mitigation for the temporal mitigation. Then uh, we, in two thousand nine, they came up for a site visit, and we weren't even at the site yet. We were looking at some of our other reclamation projects when one of the main core people started telling my employees to look for another job because they were never going to get a permit. And they hadn't even been to the site at that point. So then we went through that. We knew it wasn't going to go well after that. And then, uh, so they did their jurisdictional determination. They did it on a significant nexus first. They admitted they couldn't make nexus. So then they came back and they said, well, we're going to do the navigable water way instead, which the closest navigable water was 135 miles away. And in doing that, they wrote like a 30-page document talking about how the amount of water coming out of our peat bog that was like a six-inch wide pipe was going to stop the lake sturgeon from coming down from Winnipeg, Manitoba, down the Red River to Grand Forks, which would put us at about 250 miles away. And I haven't seen lake sturgeon in Grand Forks forever anyway. But uh, So we went through that. They claimed jurisdiction on the navigable waters. We appealed that to the Corps through their appellate process. The, that took about 9 to 11 months. They came back agreeing with Hawks that they didn't make jurisdiction and that uh, they sent it back to the, to the branch in St. Paul. St. Paul just changed a few words and said, we're going with it anyway. So then that's when we filed our lawsuit to go to the court to get a judicial review as allowed. We got there, we got thrown out of court because they said the jurisdictional determination wasn't a final decision, which then ramped it up. We went through that. We went through the appeal on that. We won that. We went to the U.S. Supreme Court and got an eight to nothing verdict in our favor, which then we went back to the uh, the local court in Minneapolis again, which was three years and some odd time after from when it got started. We actually won that case, which got the core removed from the site and the, and the project. And fortunately, last November, we finally got our last permit through the DNR and everybody that we needed to get it through. So we're roughly 11 years from the time we started till we got our machinery in the field. Um, some of the, the biggest things that I 
really don't like how it worked was, number one, there was a lot of fabricating of information from the core people. Uh, they actually went to the landowner that we had the option to buy the land with. They sent two people up from St. Paul to his house for a two-and-a-half-hour meeting to try and convince him to sell the real estate to someone else while we got $200,000 already invested in a permit application. And they gave him names and numbers to people that would buy it to put it in a preservation to sell it out from under us, well knowing that we had option to buy and con contracts with that landowner, which then forced us to have to buy the land seven years before we got our permit and had to follow through on it. And when I confronted them about that, they literally lied to me saying, well, we didn't know you had a permit or an, or an option to buy. But then later in the conversation, they said, well, we thought it ran out. So um, the other thing was in the, the CORE's process, the, the local office made the decisions twice. Once they agreed with us, they couldn't make it. So they changed the rules. Then they go back at it again. They send it to the appeals process, a third-party core office, which agreed with Hawks. But then when they get it back, to, they send it back down to the core office in St. Paul. The upper level, which I would think should be the upper level of the appeals process, has no power or authority. So the, the, the local branch just overrode it and went right back to where they were, set in stone that they weren't going to give a permit no matter what. Where in all other things, if you send it to a higher power, the higher power generally overrules, but not in this Corps of Engineers process. That's why we had to, we were forced to take it to the judicial review to get it to a, a regular judge to make the decisions. So um, I think I've got most of it in there. So, so our, our next presenter is on the front lines of the Clean Water Act battles, and he's uh, going to provide us numerous examples of the overreach. Tony Francois is a senior attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation. His practice includes environmental, land use, administrative, and constitutional law. He's litigated, litigated cases involving the geographic reach of the Clean Water Act and federal enforcement abuses against homeowners, businesses, farmers, ranchers across the country. Join me in welcoming Tony Francois. Thank you, Darren, and uh, a very big thank you to the Heritage Foundation for uh, the opportunity to share with all of you today some examples of how uh, overzealous and uh, abusive permitting and enforcement practices by the Army Corps of Engineers and the Environmental Protection Agency, or the EPA, harm ordinary Americans engaged in very normal everyday activities like road building and home building, uh, farming and fire protection. I'll speak about four examples, uh, Marquette County, Michigan, um, Mike and Chantel Sackett in Idaho, Duarte Nursery, which is a company in California, and then finish with a fellow named Joe Robertson in Montana. So the slide that's up right now is a, a map of Marquette County, Michigan. It's in the Upper Peninsula. It's uh, over 1,870 square miles. The county's 67,000 residents travel on over 1,200 miles of roads that are maintained by uh, our client, the Marquette County Road Commission. Market County is also the home to the nation's only primary nickel mine. Uh, Eagle Mine came online recently and is expected to bring $4 billion in economic activity to Market County. The nearest refinery uh, that the ore can go to is 22 miles away. The only route available to that refinery, though, is three times as long. It goes through the city of Marquette on the lakefront, uh, as well as a university campus uh, and several schools and businesses. Marquette County Road Commission proposed a new, shorter road directly from the mine to the refinery uh, called CR-595. Uh, if you can see on the slide, it's highlighted in red. Hopefully that uh, is visible. 
The new route would bypass the city of Marquette altogether, eliminate nearly 30 miles of travel per trip, a million and a half miles annually, as well as save 50, uh, excuse me, 500,000 gallons of fuel per year. Because there are wetlands along the proposed route, the Road Commission sought a Clean Water Act permit from the Michigan State Agency, which is responsible for implementing the state's federally approved Clean Water Act wetland permit program. They submitted a revised uh, application a few months later, and the state of Michigan sent copies of the application to the EPA, to the Army Corps, and the Fish and Wildlife Service, which is a review that's required by the Clean Water Act. So after consulting with the Army Corps and the Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, EPA objected to the Road Commission's uh, wetland permit application, uh, asserting that the proposed road, uh, even though it was designed to actually mitigate environmental uh, and safety impacts, was nonetheless not the least environmentally damaging practical alternative. So the Road Commission and EPA discussed the application over the next several months. Uh, The Road Commission submitted multiple revisions to try to address EPA's rather vaguely stated concerns. The final version proposed to protect 63 acres of wetlands for every acre that the road project would disturb. EPA continued to object to uh, CR 595 because, in their view, the commission still had not provided adequate plans to minimize impacts uh, and that its 63 to 1 mitigation ratio was not a comprehensive mitigation plan uh, that would sufficiently compensate for unavoidable impacts. The Road Commission repeatedly tried to work with the EPA to uh, determine what could be done to ameliorate the agency's still vague objections. EPA refused to cooperate, vetoed any state permit, and transferred the entire permitting process over to the Federal Army Corps of Engineers, where the process has to start all over from the beginning. The next example uh, involves uh, Mike and Chantel Sackett, uh, who um, own a home site in Idaho. Um, it's a little bit difficult to see on the slide, but you can see there's uh, homes several, a couple of blocks in from the lakefront, uh, and then a road that kind of that, that sits uh, quite a ways from the lake. Their home site is on that road, and it's immediately bounded by built homes uh, to either side of them. They bought the site in 2004. At the beginning of May 2007, they prepped the site uh, to build their home by removing uh, unsuitable material, placing sand and gravel on the home site to create a stable grade. And on May 3rd of that month, officers of the EPA, responding to a complaint from a still unidentified neighbor, came to the site, uh, announced their opinion that the site contains federally protected wetlands that are subject to Clean Water Act regulation, and directed their work crew to cease work until an Army Corps permit for the work could be produced. The SACCOTs had never been advised to seek such a permit or never been informed that anybody considered their site a a wetland, um, even after obtaining all the necessary permits from Bonner County, Idaho, to build their home. Four months, the SACCOTs sought an explanation from both the Army Corps and the EPA uh, as to why they claimed that the act covered their site. Despite assurances from both agencies that this explanation would be provided, it was never forthcoming. Uh, and nevertheless, the EPA issued an administrative compliance order to the Sacketts uh, in November of that year, 2007. So the order found that the Sacketts home site contains wetlands subject to federal protection under the Act, and then threatened the Sacketts with fines of up to $37,500 per day unless they restored the site, fenced it off for three years, and built their home somewhere else. The accumulated daily fines to date, if they were actually imposed, uh, would total well over $100 million. And uh, as of this day, uh, they've not been able to build on the site. The Sackets objected at the time to the EPA's assertion of jurisdiction. They demanded a hearing on whether or not the act applied to their site. Uh, the EPA acknowledged receipt of the demand, but uh, declined to provide them a hearing. And... As I said to this day, EPA persists in the claim that the Sackett's home site uh, is a federally protected wetland, 
despite never having done the legally required steps to determine that it is, in fact, a wetland. They never performed a jurisdictional determination at the site, either through a request of the Sacketts uh, or a request that the Sacketts allow them on the site to perform the, the jurisdictional determination or obtaining an administrative warrant, which would allow them access to the site to do a jurisdictional determination. Uh, they also never provided a written statement of the basis for jurisdiction uh, under the Act, despite repeated requests from the Sacketts. The next example I'll cover is uh, Duarte Nursery in California. Uh, so what you see on the slide is a vernal pool. Uh, it is a shallow depression uh, in pasture land that holds water for you know, four to six weeks a year. As a result, it is a, uh, considered a wetland under the three-factor wetland definition. This is on a 450-acre parcel that uh, Duarte Nursery owns in Northern California. Uh, and in 2012, they allowed an associate to plant a wheat crop on this property. He then had the property plowed to plant the crop. Uh, and that activity, plowing to produce a crop, uh, is specifically exempt from the permitting under the Clean Water Act, both the statute and the implementing regulations. Despite that exempt, uh, exemption, uh, the local Army Corps enforcement officer drove by the property while it was being plowed. He immediately concluded that the plowing violated the act because he had not issued a permit for it and announced to his superiors that this was, quote, going to be a big violation. He then waited until the work was complete several weeks later before notifying Duarte Nursery that he thought the plowing was illegal. He then filed an enforcement report uh, with his superiors that falsely claimed that the field was plowed three feet deep, that it had permanently destroyed wetlands on the, on the site, and that the company had known in advance that this would be illegal and approved it nonetheless. Uh, subsequent discovery in the case proved that all three of these were false. He then, after filing the report, uh, in his words, purged the file to prevent disclosure of its contents uh, under a, uh, an Open Freedom of Information Act request. When the falsehoods in his report were brought to light, the Army could have backed off, you know, recognizing what the facts on the ground were. Uh, what you see on the slide is actually the condition of the site after it was plowed. Uh, so you can't even really tell that it had been plowed. Instead, the Army doubled down uh, with the theory that the plowing was not really plowing because it moved dirt around. The government's experts absurdly characterized the plow furrows as mini mountain range and their effect on the vernal pools as though a tornado had struck a village. Their brief in court argued that because uh, of the mini mountain rains and the tornado-like effect of the plowing, the judge could not possibly consider this to be plowing because look at all the dirt that moved around. Unfortunately, the judge in the case agreed with the government's theory of liability. The company had to settle the case for $1.1 million in payments to the Army and to third parties to avoid a catastrophic penalty of over $40 million that the government was seeking at trial. And again, that's the navigable water. Uh, and, you know, there's several acres of, of these accumulated across the site. But that's what we're talking about there, those vernal pools. The final example I'll uh, discuss uh, involves Joe Robertson. So the navigable water at issue in this case is, uh, you see it on the screen, it uh, is depicted on maps as an unnamed channel. As you can see, it is about a foot wide and a foot deep, and it runs through a clearing in the woods in Montana. Uh, according to the government's own testimony, it carries two to three garden hoses worth of flow. This nameless channel is more than 40 miles distant from the nearest actually navigable water body, the Jefferson River. That's the map that the government used to show the relationship of the site to the Jefferson River. I won't bother trying to walk you through it. Uh, needless to say, it takes a long way to get there, and it's 40 miles away. So Joe Robertson is an elderly Navy veteran. Uh, he owns the private property where this channel arises uh, in the Montana woods. He's lived there with his wife, Carrie, for many years. He's also at various times owned the mineral rights, the mining rights associated with federal land that is immediately downhill from his property, which uh, which this uh, unnamed trickle 
traverses on its way to the Jefferson River. So the Robertsons uh, ran a firefighting support truck business, a water truck business, living deep in the woods in an increasingly fire-prone landscape. They were concerned about the safety and vulnerability of their property. In 2013 and 14, Joe dug a series of small water supply ponds in and around the channel with a view to being well-prepared should fire strike near his home. Trucks could be backed up to the ponds and filled up in order to fight fire effectively. Some of the ponds sit on private property. The government charges that uh, some of the other ponds sit on federal land. Joe dug the ponds without permission from the Army Corps under the Clean Water Act. Uh, And he was subsequently criminally prosecuted by the federal government. After a hung jury in his first trial, the government bolstered their case against him by breaching his ponds to create flow in this channel. And based on the evidence of the flow they created by breaching his ponds, they were able to convict him at, uh, at his second trial. He was sentenced, and he's, uh, he was uh, 78 at the time of his sentencing. Uh, he was sentenced to 18 months in federal prison and to pay $130,000 in restitution to the federal government, uh, which is presently being deducted from his uh, Social Security payments. The Supreme Court will consider uh, later in April whether to hear his appeal. And we hope that they do. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. Wow. Um, Kevin, I'm going to ask you just a very general question. Um, I think the the core probably bets on the fact that a lot of property owners are just going to give up. And just a couple questions. Why didn't you give up? And what suggestions would you give for other property owners in a similar situation? Well, we were <clears throat> we were in need of a new project. We've been in the peat business for 25 years, and we needed another project. So we were kind of desperate to get one, and we didn't think it would take 10 years to get it. But what we found is the practice of our local core office out of Minneapolis is, number one, delay. Number two, discourage. And if that don't work, basically try to bankrupt you. And that's what they were doing to us with the different projects we had. Because we had two other permits that were coming due that were due to finish up. And when we were in the middle of all these court cases, they did everything possible to cost us the most money they could cost us on a a renewal of a permit. Uh, They made a mistake on a permit instead of just writing the extension to the permit that they were going to do, they were supposed to do, and they just forgot. They made us go through a $200,000 renewal for a new permit and upgrade it to current building codes, so to speak, which took almost two and a half years to get the permit through on what should have been a one-page document signed in 10 minutes. So they... uh, <clears throat> they they have a real problem that if if you don't cooperate and do exactly what they want for their private agenda, get ready for retaliation because they retaliate and they come back hard. We were threatened with thirty five to seventy five thousand dollar a day fines. They told the judges that they could wait for five years when the number adds up to enough and they come back and get the money. They have all these different things that they do in order to try and intimidate you to go away. And I think that a big number of the applicants that ever sign up for something just get tired of the program and they, they turn and walk away from it because they won't deal with the, with the overreach of what's going on. So, Thanks. So, Tony, um, kind of connected to this issue, I know that you're probably hearing a lot of examples of overreach, but event, you know, ultimately some of these individuals never decide to actually challenge the core. Um, so a lot of the stories that we otherwise would exist would exist we don't hear about because property owners just basically forego their projects and whatever. Do, do you have any sense of how much is actually being foregone out there? Well, that's uh, that's difficult to estimate. Um, for example, one thing I can tell you about it's um, we've ne- not been able to um, substantiate it because the people to whom this has been done 
uh, are intimidated. They do not want to come forward. But uh, we've had uh, consultants tell us um, who are familiar with the Duarte Nursery case that the, they have clients who, to whom Army Corps staff have gone, told, look, here's what we did with this Duarte case and some other cases. We think you've done the same. We, we think you've committed the same violations. Um, if you settle with us now uh, for a thirty to fifty thousand dollar payment, uh, that will conclude the matter. If you resist us, uh, you will face the same multi million dollar um, liability risk that the Duartes did. And a number of them have uh, made these payments to settle those cases, uh, including confidentiality agreements that they are told will result in voiding the settlement if they tell anybody what the government's done to them. Um, I'm aware of development projects uh, in Northern California where the setbacks demanded by the Army Corps um, render the project unfeasible, and they're simply abandoned. And I think it's recognized that it's going to be too difficult to burn through the permitting process to arrive at a project that's financially feasible at the end of it. So one of the issues that the General Accounting Office, it was called that in 2004, identified was the fact that the different offices, the Corps, were using kind of the vague interpretations of the law in a way to kind of intentionally um, gives them a little bit of flexibility to kind of make choices that um, achieve their, their objectives, and there's no consistency um, throughout the different offices. This vagueness problem is particularly problematic because it's got criminal penalties, including the civil. So, Kevin, was there any clarity at, at any point right at the outset that the Corps gave you in terms of what you needed to do? And, and if they did, did they just kind of – it sounds like they just kind of – you know, if they did say – this is what you needed to do. They kind of changed the rules on you. Can you just kind of flesh that out some more? Well, they they would lay they we went to them and asked them, and we had an account or an engineering firm on on the commission to to work all of this. So it wasn't just us trying to do it ourselves. But we would go to the core, ask them what they need. They would give us part of what they needed as as it turned out, because after we'd spend the time and they'd go do their studies which could have all been done at once, they would go back to their office. Okay, now you got that. Now we want this. Go back and do it again. Now we want this. Go back and do it again. And this just proceeded on for for years. We had this uh, engineering firm was running us thousands and thousands of dollars a month for years. And it was just over little to nothing stuff that they were looking at, but they would just, uh, they had an agenda in my mind in Minneapolis that they weren't going to let any more peat bogs get mined in Minnesota. And they said they didn't want it to turn out like California and that they, uh, they just, their personal discretion, they, they overlooked their own manual. We opened the book on their manual showed them what a farm ditch looked like, showed them that it said exempt, showed them that we were, you know, over the 1,500 feet from a river or a ditch, and they didn't care. They would label, they'd label a farm ditch a tributary. They would call the, the dry bed river uh, navigable water. They took nexus when they shouldn't, and... Uh, Basically, they would bend the rules and make up stuff as they went if it didn't suit them. So. Thank um, So, Tony, let's say the Trump administration actually came up with a really good definition of what navigable waters is. And it's actually kind of consistent with the Constitution, Clean Water Act, and it's got a, a fairly bright line test that property owners can actually understand what it means. Would it even matter if the core is simply um, going to ignore what the law says anyway? I mean, what kind of protections can be put in place to make sure they actually follow the law? Well, that's a very good question, uh, Darren. So t I think there's two important pieces of the answer to that. One is that if the, if the regulation that uh, the Trump administration adopts uh, is sufficiently clear, then the, the agencies will have um, – 
a lot less leverage and holding that uncertainty over permit applicants or other people engaged in going about their business. They use the fact that it's uncertain whether the act applies to leverage people into expensive studies um, and potential liability. And they will stand there and say, well, unless you do this hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of jurisdictional study and satisfy us that it's not jurisdictional, you can do your thing, and then we may decide to enforce against you. Um, but we're not going to tell you in advance whether or not you're subject to our control. The other is that um, it's important to have certainly the, the judicial review that's been established so far, but then it needs to be expanded and broadened. Uh, it needs to be made clear to the courts that um, the due process clause applies to these the decisions about use of people's property so that the kinds of self-interested decision-making on incomplete facts that they now engage in uh, can be stopped in court. Darren, what we found was that the only the only good avenue we had in the whole thing over that 11-year deal was the judicial review. And that, because we couldn't get through the bureaucracy of the core offices themselves. And even in our appeals court case, when we were in front of the judges, the DOJ stood up there and told the appeals judges that the EPA and the Corps were in the process of writing their own laws to eliminate how the judicial system could even intervene in this process. And uh, the judges didn't like that very well, so they scolded them pretty good, but but that's the mindset that was going on. They, they write their own internal rules, they change them and call them a law, and then try to enforce them on the public which doesn't know any better because we don't know where to go to get the true facts without taking it to court. So this question is um, maybe not necessarily specific just to kind of the wars at U.S. or 404 or anything like that, but it's Clean Water Act specific or in permit specific. You can answer this if you feel like um, or not. There are times when government officials, when someone is seeking a permit, may decide to, um, in a transparent or not so transparent way, ask the permit applicant to address some other environmental objective that has absolutely nothing to do with the actual project. So I want a particular project. Well, fine, you can, so long as you, hey, you fix some water problem we have over here in the state. Um, a lot of this, I'll call basically extortion, I think it's being done. And I think a lot of permit applicants are probably hesitant to actually bring it up because they don't want to get feel the wrath of the federal government or the states, for that matter. Um, any sense of how prevalent this might be? Um, well, in a very fundamental way, that is baked into the way permitting works under the Clean Water Act because to permit a project – when it's determined, for example, that you're going to have unavoidable impacts on, say, 10 acres of wetlands as part of the project, assuming they're federally protected. Um, the Army Corps, as part of issuing a permit for that, will insist that you mitigate uh, at a ratio. So if you're going to have 10 acres of impacts, they want you to mitigate 30 or 50 or more acres of wetlands elsewhere. So there is a constitutional rule that says that uh, a permitting agency of the government cannot demand your property in exchange for giving you a permit that you're some, that you are otherwise uh, allowed to receive, and you know there are uh, there are some circumstances so that that they can insist that you do things to mitigate your project. So the ten acres of wetlands that your project will impact. Um, I would say the you know the Army Corps has legal authority to require you to mitigate those ten acres, but in a, it's not just that the Army Corps demands excessive mitigation. That is all to mitigate impacts that somebody else caused, either some other place or some other time. So that's not the applicant's burden to mitigate. So that itself is is illegal in our view. But there's not even a clear system for how much mitigation you have to do, what ratio is going to be applied. That is very much within the discretion of the permitting officials. 
And it's this ambiguity, this uncertainty about what the rules actually are that makes that system vulnerable to abuse and misuse, where it's very difficult to say, okay, so we, you know, we're Kevin and we're not being cooperative and compliant and all of a sudden we see our mitigation ratio ticking up um, versus if we're, you know, a very well capitalized, you know, company that's going to be building homes for resale. Um, they're just there to get the project done, com- you know, cooperative and their, their ratio goes down. Um, so it's difficult to tease that out. The, the, the other aspect of this that is, um, I, I think rife for abuse is that the same agencies of the Army Corps issues the permits for which they require you to purchase mitigation credits. They also certify the mitigation credits for other people to sell you. So if I show up, I need a, a permit to impact 100 acres of wetlands. Uh, this perhaps even the same person who certified some other fellows 300 acres of mitigation bank credits will tell me you need to now go buy the 300 acres of mitigation credits that I just certified for this elf, other fellow. And you know that's that's a system that is you know substantially uh, vulnerable to abuse. One, one thing I'd like to inject in there for you, Tony, is I don't, I don't know what it is in California for mitigation acres. I imagine it's a lot more than Minnesota. But in northern Minnesota, a mitigation acre, acre will cost anywhere from thirty dollars to $100,000 an acre to buy wetland to offset what you're going to do. And that's what the highway departments and uh, counties and everybody have to deal with is on a road project, sometimes the mitigation is more than the road project. So it's it's a real substantial cost at a one-to-one. But like in our case, the Corps kept coming back telling us they were thinking about 10-to-1. Okay, so I'm going to spend a million dollars an acre to get my peat bog so I can try to make a living with all my employees and myself. You know, it's that's just one of them deals where they go back to delay, discourage, or bankrupt is what their policy tends to be in Minnesota anyway. Kevin, last night you mentioned something about the, if I remember correctly, the property value compared to the actual costs you had to incur. Do you remember? Yeah, our, our one site that we were forced to buy because the Corps was intervening in it five years, six years before we were supposed to, it cost us a half million dollars up front to buy the land five, six years before we had the permit. And by the time we got through the permitting costs, it cost us a million and a half dollars for 180 acres. Which, in a normal case, we permitted other land before that. It didn't cost us $50,000 to $100,000 to permit 500 acres we had before. So... After 2008, things really changed. So the permitting is three times the cost of the, the, the land. land. Yeah. And, and for a small project, you know, and there's like 5 million acres of peatland in northern Minnesota, but this 180 acres was going to go down in the record books for the core, the way it looks. So uh, The other thing with the uh, – we actually sued under the old water – Clean Water Act or whatever it is. And uh, the, we had our case set, then it got delayed because of the court. Well, in that three years that it took us to get back there, the new rule that they wrote basically to us, so I could walk through our case, go line by line on everything we were winning, and look at the new rule, and that had some offset to it, so there was no way to win a case anymore with the new rule. One example is they had a 500 to a 1500 foot connection you had to be within to make a significant nexus or inevitable water. Right now they changed that to 4,000 feet from any water way or ditch. Well, if you go out and take a one mile square 5,280 feet and go around all sides of it, 
how much land is uncovered if you got 4,000 feet from four sides. There isn't one acre that you could have that wouldn't be regulated, even down to a puddle in a parking lot. So, Tony, real fast, um, you talked about a, hopefully I remember the story correctly, a subdivision where they were trying to build 400-something homes or something, and... Yeah, I, we were uh, contacted by a, a developer uh, in Northern California several years ago. Um, so he had approached the county permitting department to talk about uh, permitting, a, I think it was about 230 homes on a 40-acre parcel. Um, I think it was within the city limits. And so this is a similar landscape to the Duarte Nursery case, and so there's a lot of these small vernal pools on it. And the county had said, you know, before we waste any time on this, you got to go tell us what the Army Corps is going to allow you to do on this project. And then you decide whether you want to go forward or not, and then we'll work on it. So the Army Corps, uh, historic practice had been to require 50-foot setbacks around the uh, vernal pools. And that setback is what the, what the uh, developer had used to plan the site. And that gave them about 230 units. When they went to just confirm that with the Army Corps, and I believe it's the same individual that did the uh, falsehood-laden enforcement report in Duarte Nursery, um, he changed the setback from 50 feet to 500 feet. The result of which is basically the, the site would be discontinuous. You would need flyover bridges to get from spot. It would be like, you know, Lynx Golf in Scotland, um, and, you know, brought it down to about 17 units or something like that. And, I, I mean, the, the county government is powerless to tell the Corps they can't do that. Um, so that, that that kind of thing happens, absolutely. Uh, so it's time for your questions. Um, give me one second. You guys have the microphone back there. We have a question right up here up front, uh, Tulane. Over here. Uh, Myron Ebel, CEI. Uh, I'd like to ask about another kind of vagueness. Uh, you always talk about they or he or it. Uh, would actually identifying these people by name and naming and shaming them get us somewhere? And beyond that, is there legal recourse to go after these people individually? Well, the second question first, I mean, theoretically, you could you could bring a Bivens claim against, you know, federal employees. I um, actually don't know whether you get, you know, further down the road identifying, um, you know, people individually. The uh, – that's deposition testimony transcript from the enforcement official in Reading um, where he admits to purging the file. Um, when we asked both of his supervisors about him purging the file, they were completely unflapped by that. One of them said, yeah, I think that's our policy. We purge the file before it goes up the chain. So, you know, you would – it certainly doesn't help the cause to make sure that their superiors know what they're doing. Um, that's our experience. Um, you know, at the same time, you know, it's important for people to know who the real people are, you know, who the Sackets are, who Kevin is, who Joe Robertson is. And maybe it does help to know who the individuals are that are misusing their power. Um, the, the the fellow that runs the Reading office, it's pretty much just him. He is the Army Corps guy for five counties, and he decides what happens there and what doesn't if it falls under his jurisdiction. We have a question right here in the middle. And also, when you state, ask a question, just state your affiliation as well. Susan O'Toole, retired federal worker, United States Department of Agriculture. Thank you for doing this. I think this is uh, wonderful. I follow, I've been following this since uh, Talent versus Headwater with the Clean Water Act. And I'm curious about the exemption for farming. Is that still in the new implementing regulation? And also, you said you filed under the old 
implementing regulations. So now that the new ones are in place, do you have to follow that? That's my question, basically. Yeah, we, we filed under the previous to 2015 regulation that's trying to get put into play, which would have been the 1985 one. If I'm so correct. you can continue in that. Yeah, so the uh, the government typically takes a position uh, that the regulations in effect when they start an enforcement action are in are, are the ones that will be applied throughout it. Okay, so my main question is, what happened to the farming exemption? I am so happy you asked that. So the question is, what happened to the farming exemption? And the Act clearly states that ordinary farming practices are exempt both from the general prohibition on discharges in the Act and also from the permitting requirements of the Act. The implementing regulations say that plowing is never a discharge. And if it's not a discharge, then if you follow the text of the Act, it's not regulated by the Act because the Act regulates discharges. So (laughs) Duarte Nursery was quite curious what happened to the farming exemption because what they were doing was plowing their property to plant a wheat crop on it. And this is what we learned when we deposed the, the staff at the Army Corps. First of all, the um, the Army Corps adopts this very counterintuitive understanding of what ordinary farming practices are. I think in plain English, what that means is if this is the type of thing that people normally do when they're farming, then it's exempt. Um, the way the Corps reinterprets that or rewrites that is if this is the kind of thing, in fact, the very thing that you have done on this property routinely for years, then we will allow you to keep doing it. As soon as you do something different, we own you. Now, you will not find this written anywhere. The head, the, the head is shaking there for, for those watching on the Internet. You will not find this anywhere. It's not written down. They all admit, no, this isn't written down anywhere. But oddly, we all know it exactly the same way, and everybody in this fellow's chain of command was able to recite the exact same rule, that we limit the farming exemption to things that have habitually been done on that particular property. And so something as workaday as plowing is, in their view, not a normal farming practice, not an ordinary farming practice, because that particular property hadn't been plowed in a number of years. Uh, Let me just add, um, this is a really important point. Uh, I think folks kind of don't think agriculture and farmers and ranchers are impacted because of this 404 exemption for normal farming activities. But as Tony said, it's very narrowly interpreted. Um, reality is, plain language, is normal farming activities and ranching activities would be, again, what what a normal person would think of as normal, just what you'd see on a farm anywhere. But it is limited to just normal for that particular property. And also, there's been some confusion, but it appears that the activity has to have occurred since, like, 1977. Um, but there's still, you know, some of these, like the Farm Bureau and other groups, trying to get clarity on that point. So reality is there's this thought that you have this very big exemption for farming. Reality is it's very narrow. And it probably explains why many agriculture groups are so concerned about the WOTUS issue. Um, because it definitely impacts them, and this 4-4 exemption is not as much an exemption as you'd think. Yeah. So if, if, if that vernal pool is actually federally protected navigable waters, then it, it matters whether moving dirt around is plowing or something else. And the argument that the government made in the Duarte Nursery case is that, you know, it couldn't possibly be plowing because look at all the dirt that moved. And I'm not exaggerating that, but that is there. And, the, and the, the, the decision that the judge ultimately made in the case is that because the plowshanks moved soil forward and backward and side to side, it was a discharge that was subject to permitting under the Clean Water Act. Now, I'll mention just the policy matter. The reason there's an exemption in the Act is because in the 70s, when the Army Corps began to expand its definition of navigable waters, it observed that because we're defining this broadly to include things like this vernal pool, uh, farmers will now need Clean Water Act permits to farm. And everybody naturally went crazy. Uh, and in the 1970s, in one of its rare lucid moments, Congress actually amended the Clean Water Act to exempt farming, precisely because the Army Corps said it was going to start requiring permits for it. 
Uh, and so while we've seen the agency broaden its definition of what's navigable since then, it's also been contracting what applies for those exemptions. Uh, one, one other thing that uh, just remembered, too, is uh, goes along with your farming question. The uh, used to be a term out there that it was if it was prior converted in the Corps of Engineers. Now, on the NRCS part of, part of it, if it's prior converted, you can farm this wetland, you can do all this stuff. And on the core, at one point, if it was prior converted farmland, you didn't need a 404 permit to mine it, which when we brought that up on some alternatives we were looking at, they said, oh, we don't honor that anymore. We, don't, we no longer do that. So, so and they, I said, well, you know, it's been farmed and whatever. But if it hasn't been farmed in the last five years, which CRP put a lot of it away for 20 years, for government payments, then if it wasn't farmed, ditches weren't cleaned and manicured every year for the last five years, it now falls under core jurisdiction no matter what. They're not going to honor the prior converted or any other statutes that were set out there prior. And that we were told that during this period of 11 years that we went through all this with. Some more questions? We have a little more time. A couple questions. Over here, Glenn. Brian O'Quinn, Heritage. Uh, I was wondering if there's any differences across the different states, different regions of the United States, somewhere like Texas, maybe Arkansas. Are they more permissive or than California and Minnesota? The, so the Army Corps does the, the wetland dredge and fill permitting. They are organized across the country into districts. The districts are all kind of odd sizes and shapes. So um, I think the district in Minneapolis covers a couple of states. Um, the district in Sacramento, California, covers parts of four states. And there is variation from one to the other. That's one of the things in the GAO report that Darren mentioned at, at the outset. Is that there's a lot of inconsistency both in how they apply the exemptions and and how they will do jurisdictional determinations. Frankly, I think that's um, mainly a measure of um, different staff members' tenure at the at the agency. Is my view of it. Um, if you're part of uh, an older generation that views this as an environmental protection statute, that they have a certain system for applying. Um, sometimes the application of that will be harsh, but they're, they try to be consistent and professional in doing that. Uh, the younger you get within the agency staff, the more likely you are to be dealing with people that have, uh, as Kevin said, an agenda-driven view of what their purpose is. Um, it's worth noting, for example, that the Sackett's case also involves peat. The, the EPA is convinced, because they found it on an old map, from before the roads there were built, that their site is a peat bog. Uh, and they have a policy that says we are never going to issue a permit on a peat site, which is why, even though they could get a nationwide permit to build their home, uh, the EPA told them we'll never allow you to build a house here. And because we think you have access to other property, we'll just tell you to build your house somewhere else. Um, so I, I, I think that the um, inconsistency is derived mainly from, you know, how, um, to what degree the staff you're dealing with are, are working from um, a non-statutory personal agenda. One more question, this last question right here. Thank you. Hi, my name is Leanne. I'm an intern with the Heritage Foundation. And Based off the examples that I've seen today, it seems like there's at least a few individuals whose lives would be better off without the regulation of the EPA and the, and the core. So this is a pretty general question, but what is the purpose of these agencies and is it possible for them to function without, um, while respecting property rights? <laughs> I think the short answer to that is, is yes, it's certainly possible for them to um, protect the environment um, and respect property rights and other constitutional and statutory limits on, on how they do their work. 
the Clean Water Act. So all the examples you've seen today are at a, at a significant remove from actual navigable lakes and rivers. Um, you know, the, the quintessential example, I think it's the Cuyahoga River, but there was the river in Cleveland that would catch fire during the summer because of the industrial waste that was being um, just directly discharged into it. So under the Clean Water Act, there has been a wholesale um, reform in the way industrial facilities and um, municipal waste plants discharge. Um, you know, depending on your view of it, uh, there are a lot of people in the professional waste treatment business today that say you could drink the effluent from sewage plants when they're done treating it. And that's the the magnitude of the accomplishment of the Clean Water Act. I mean, to, to a great extent, crazy things like, you know, what was done to Kevin are um, basically um, they're setting back the purpose of the agency and, uh, and the, you know, the, the good purposes of the act because it's mission creep, you know, and there's still some work to do on, you know, our main waterways and things like that. Um, and, you know, science is always raising new questions about new things that maybe aren't getting dealt with in the treatment works. Um, but that's the purpose of the act. And it's not to go out into farm fields a dozen miles from the nearest river and micromanage how deep a plow shank goes into a vernal pool. And it's this kind of nonsense, if you will, that, that gives the agencies and the act a bad name. Thank you very much. Uh, join me in thanking the panelists. Thank you.